Welcome to Elixir Mix, your Elixir podcast talking with members of the community. My name is Mark Erickson, and today we have Josh Adams. Hello. Sophie Benedetto. Hey, guys. And our special guest, David Bernheisel. hey Early in my career, I figured out which jobs were worth working at and which ones weren't, mostly by trial and error. I created a system that I used to find jobs and later contracts as a freelancer. If you're looking for a job or trying to figure out where you should go next, then check out my book, The Max Coder's Guide to Finding Your Dream Developer Job. The book walks you through figuring out what you want, vetting companies that meet your criteria, meeting that company's employees, and getting them to recommend you for a job. Don't settle for whoever has listed their job on the job board. Go out and proactively find the job you'll love. Buy the book at devchat.tv slash job book. That's devchat.tv slash job book. So David, we're glad to have you back. You've been on once before where we were talking more about what we can do in the community and around meetups and things like that. So if you want to check that out, there's a link in the show notes. It was episode 68. Uh, but today I'm really happy to have you on because you did an interesting article uh, where you're talking about ecto change sets. And, and it's a great resource, especially if you want to like pick up some little tips and tricks. And one of the things I think is awesome about change sets is just how powerful they are. And so we were talking before the show. And so I'd love to hear kind of, you know, as you're coming to Elixir, David, and you're experimenting with this and, and what was your experience like and particularly around change sets? Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so coming into Elixir, uh, it's probably about four years ago. Um, Elixir looked a lot like it looks now. Um, but the big new thing to me was, was Ecto. And uh, my experience had been in, in Rails code bases with, uh, you know, active record. Um, active model wasn't really a thing to me then. And I don't know if it was back then. I, it, I just didn't know about it. Um, an active model is like the, is kind of like a non-database backed, you know, plain old Ruby object kind of thing, but with a lot of active record conveniences. Um, I had come from that background. And so that's a different architecture for for modeling your your objects, your databases, and your validations and that kind of thing. Uh, and, and then I came into Elixir where Ecto was was that, you know, my my object, you know, mapper, um, my data mapper. And that was the big change for me when I was coming into Elixir. Um, and yeah, and, and the first thing that I experienced was was change sets. You know, I, I could understand what like the repo was that this was a different, a different way of organizing your data and getting, getting your, your data out of the database. Um, and, and repo made sense to me in the, in the context of like a, a functional programming, it felt necessary, but change sets, man, that was, that was everything to me. Um, a lot of the struggles that I had uh, with some other code bases was like just managing callbacks, managing validations, and not just that, but like <laughs> you could, you could create your, your model and have all of the validations, all the ideal scenario validations going on, but then you just get that one feature, you get that one, you know, either other form you have to mess with. And, and it's like, ah, oh, we're going to break the rules here. We gotta, we gotta do something a little bit different. And now, now you gotta, now you gotta really ugly up your, your code to, to make that, that, that scenario work out and, and, and change sets just totally avoided that whole problem for me. And, and I loved it. I fell in love right then. Um, 
And uh, it was right on the cusp. I remember this. Uh, Ecto one was still a th- still a thing, but Ecto two was just about to release, and um, uh, and it kind of changed the way that you you modeled your modeled your data. You know, they got away from Ecto model. They're going to Ecto schemas, that kind of thing. So um, I, I I had the advantage, I guess, of not knowing what Ecto one was really like, and I started on Ecto two going forward, and uh, it was it was what made me stay with Ecto and, and Elixir. That's cool. Uh, so like, I know for myself, one of the big things for me coming to Elixir was pattern matching, partly because of the book I was going through was not focused on database stuff. And I was just trying to learn Elixir as a language. Uh, but pattern matching was awesome. And it's like a superpower for me. Uh, but Ecto change sets, you know, I've, have, I've come from like a C sharp background and a Ruby on rails. And I have also seen those active record models with the conditional validations and, you know, it gets very complicated. And, and then you're like, okay, well, maybe I can, you know, like the active model kind of idea, or I can create a form object to try and validate the logic coming in at this level. And, but then, you know, I still have to validate at the end level. It's like, it's just so, it gets complicated. And it was, it was a really big mess. I, I totally agree. And that is one, like my coworker, uh, one of the things he loves the most is change sets, just for how they cleaned up our database validation and just input validation. And the other thing I love is that you can use change sets not strictly with a database. You can use them without a database just for validating input. And so I was wondering if you could just kind of give us a quick intro to this blog post you wrote and maybe so we can kind of start talking from that perspective. Yeah, sure. Um, so <laughs> this was a Sunday morning. I went to a coffee shop and I just had all these things in my head and I just went ahead and brain dumped. I didn't even think about like your know, proper blog post etiquette or how long or, you know, separating topics and all that kind of stuff. So th- this is like two hours of me, uh, highly caffeinated. And, um, <laughs> and, and I thought, hey, you know what, this is a good topic. I, I, I see a lot of good tips out there about Ecto. Um, but it's 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 somewhat aging a little bit. So I, I figured I would I would refresh um, some of the tips that I've seen and some of the new things that I've I've come up with uh, over the past year or so. Um, and so there's four things that I, I talk about in the in the blog post. One is um, there's there's a lot of boilerplate that you might set up with your your Ecto schemas. So I talk about how to extract some of that just to keep it a little bit more succinct. Um, and, and these are the boilerplate is things like. Um, if you have a pattern in your in your code base to always use binary IDs like UUIDs, you know, extract that out so you're not constantly repeating it. Another tip was um, how to generate those UUIDs in the in the database. Um, Ecto has some good uh, defaults, um, and it will generate the UUIDs on the application side or in the uh, application side may not be the right word. It's more like in the adapter level on the code side, not on the database side. And uh, that, you know, that, that's great. Uh, I really like that, uh, but I always felt like that's a database responsibility. So I, I, I looked for a way to get the database to generate those UUIDs and just let my, my code just consume it. Like, you know, like I'm used to like auto generated and auto incrementing, you know, regular integer kind of IDs. Uh, so that's tip number two. Number three is is interpolating your docs. Um, I think that it, this goes this this goes across a lot of libraries, not just Ecto, but I think that the libraries that have the most docs and examples win. And Ecto is certainly that. 
um, <laughs> and uh, not just with libraries, but I think with my own code base. You know, as things as things start to grow and get a little bit um, out of out of control, and by out of control, I mean you know you, you can't keep it all in your head anymore. You know, it's it's to the point to where you have to like you have to document yourself. You have to remind yourself why you made this funky little decision. Um, and if you have, you know, 20 database tables and, and 25, you know, schemas that you're working with, you're going to, you're definitely going to forget what these different, you know, change sets and schemas require, what are optional, that kind of stuff. So um, the tip is that you can interpolate some of that data into your docs. And so we, 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 we are, we are starting to use these editors now that can, uh, thanks to Elixir language server, Elixir LS, you know, it can start introspecting on your code and showing you those docs, you know, a lot closer to when you're, you're coding. And uh, I use one of those plugins in Vim and it shows me the docs and I love it. Um, and yeah, I, uh, I just, it was just a no brainer one day. I was just like, why am I writing this again? I'm writing all the required fields again. It's, this is, this is silly. So let's, uh, you know, let's, let's interpolate it, which is an often forgotten uh, feature, I think, of, of Xdocs. Uh, fourth tip, last tip, is uh, composing change sets. I don't spend a lot of time here, but I've noticed in a couple of code bases I've been in um, that we, we tend to, uh, for no good reason as far as I can tell, restrict um, what can go into the change, uh, the change set function. So the, the change sets, uh, Usually, you can start with either the struct or the change set, and most times, uh, the mistake I see is that we'll self-limit ourselves to only accept the struct in there, um, and you don't need to do that. You know, it's it's like it's like we, we're still getting used to the idea of pattern matching, um, and so we force ourselves to to give um, the change set function a, uh, a struct, and you just don't need to do that. So. Um, compose. You don't need to do that all the time, at least. So, um, and that that in that inhibits, you know, your ability to compose these change sets. So you might find yourself, you know, um, duplicating a lot of code, which is okay sometimes. But if you open your eye, yourself up to this idea that you can compose these change sets together, you can start getting really creative. Um, and uh, yeah, I thought that was a, an interesting tip. So, um, and it goes into some, some of the lessons I learned with the queries too, Ecto queries, uh, and how to compose that. Um, and uh, I didn't mention that in the article, but yeah, there's uh, maybe we can talk about it you know, if there's enough time. I definitely want to talk about it. <laughs> yeah, that can get yeah. hairy too. <laughs> well, I do think composability is a huge feature of change sets and queries like you're talking about. And uh, like right now I'm working on a course talking about how to design Elixir code. And one of the things that comes back to is like an object-oriented you know, you have all this inheritance, which is really, it's limiting and can be brittle. And like even the design patterns book says we should uh, prefer composition over inheritance. So composition is a powerful thing and change sets totally just kicks butt on that. So Josh, I, you were mentioning before how, uh, how much you like change sets. I'd like to kind of hear some of your thoughts too. I don't know that I was mentioning how much I like change sets. I think they're, I think they're very cool. Um, I don't consider myself in it. So like my relationship with chain sets is mostly I can build like the business logic layer pretty easily with garbage code and that's okay. So uh, I, I don't refactor my chain sets very frequently. I, I'll plop, I'll plop one on there and duplicate code exactly like I would not want to see someone else do. 
because I'd, I'd never touch it again. It's interesting. I think, I think Mark, you mentioned this earlier, like when you were first learning Elixir, um, one of the things that really captured your imagination was pattern matching and you weren't doing a lot with the database layer yet. And I think that's pretty common to any of us when we're learning a new language, at least for me, my go-to isn't like, great, how do I interact with the database? Like, I want to learn all the things about the language. I want to write some things. Uh, and then, you know, eventually when I have to figure out how to connect to, you know, interact with the DB, like I'll get there. Um, and that's the experience that I'm definitely having right now with learning Go. It's been a couple of weeks, if not months, of like hacking on Go, and I still haven't like made a single database query, and it's been okay. Um, so I think like same experience with Elixir. I waited as long as possible to do anything with Ecto, and then I, for still quite a while, really treated it as like a second class citizen. Like I'll figure out exactly as much as I need to make like the bare minimum of queries and interactions um, and whatever I'm devving on personally or professionally. But then in the past couple months, maybe the past year, um, I started to need it more because I was writing more and more complex applications and then really started to see uh, what Ecto was capable of. And I think composability is absolutely the key thing, like the way that it allows you to compose your queries, compose your chain sets, and then to bring it back to pattern matching, like leverage pattern matching to make, you know, those really nice skinny gutters on your <laughs> text editor where you're letting like whatever pattern matching in the functionality kind of guide how your change that or your queries are getting composed um that to me was just like really beautiful and definitely captured my imagination and uh i think you laid out some of the change that composability really nicely in your article david as well and one of the things i just want to make sure like if especially if you're new uh dear listener coming to elixir or change sets one of the things I think is interesting is just kind of getting an idea of what we're talking about when you say composable change sets. Because uh, it, it can be a little bit hard to like visualize, like kind of just like make it up in your mind. Like, what are they talking about? I don't get it. So, you know, like one of the things is, you know, you can say, I want to, I have some special logic around validating that this uh, text input is correct. So like one thing I was working with uh, at work yesterday was um, where you could put in data that was, uh, has a special format, but then you could comma separate values and put multiple values together. But internally, we want to store it as a list, a list of strings. But I don't really want to, you know, it's like it's, it's an, a seldom used little advanced kind of thing. I don't really want to create a whole like visual way of interacting with rows of data kind of stuff. I just want to just a simple a list of strings. And a change set was perfect for that. And it was just, I could create a little function that says, this is how I turn data into a text input. And this is how I take that kind of text input and turn it back into something that the change set is expecting or that, that the Ecto is expecting. And, and it works great. And in, in my particular case, I wasn't even going to the database. You know, we are talking about validating user input and then putting it into a structured uh, JSON format. You know, so like that is, it's, it's managing uh, the conversion of data and validating it and saying, well, this is required in this circumstance and this, uh, you know, you can't do that over here. And, but, you know, it's, it just makes it so much more elegant as a way of doing it. And we're not even talking to the database. And that's one of the things I love is that it's flexible in that way. Are you stuck at home climbing the walls when you should be hanging out with the community at the latest conference to get canceled? Are you wondering where to hear your JavaScript heroes like Amy Knight and Douglas Crockford and Chris Heilman? After the cancellations, I decided to put on a JavaScript conference for you, online. I invited my favorite folks from around the web and got them to come speak at an online event just for you. Go to jsremoteconf.com and check out our speakers and schedule. 
The conference is on May 14th and 15th. The call for proposals is open until March 31st. Come join us at an online conference that we guarantee will keep you safe and keep you informed. JSRemoteConf.com. Another thing I think is worth mentioning with change sets is like comparing it to active record, right? The whole idea of, of having something that's dirty, uh, like I've made a modification, but it hasn't been saved yet. You know, uh, like how that's managed is it, it like it, because it's composable, I can build up this set, but it's functional and it's immutable functional. So it's like, how does that work? You know, so David, I don't know if you want to kind of share any of the, your insights on that. Yeah, yeah. And, and I was thinking about this this last week and uh, I watched a talk um, by Rich Hickey, um, Are We There Yet? Which is a great talk, by the way. It's, it's, very, um, it's very academic, but very accessible at the same time. It, it made a lot of sense to me. Um, and Rich Hickey, I think, uh, if you don't know, he, he's uh, one of the uh, uh, inventors of, of closure. So, uh, in his talk, he, he talks about, um, it's essentially it, my brief of it is how do you manage change in data in your software? And there's a lot of, uh, techniques to do that, um, wrong ways to do it, better ways to do it. And, um, it, it, it put a lot of the words, it put a lot of words together for me to describe what I feel Ecto gets right. Uh, it's not perfect, I don't think, but, um, the, the thing that stuck with me was that I can't, I just can't see and understand how active record helps me model change. You know, like it, it, it was so focused on the object itself that it forgot that, you know, that my job as a programmer is to, is to change data, you know, like get it from this state to that state. And so there's that middle part, the actual change that it didn't model very well. Um, in my opinion. And that's, that's where I think Ecto got that really, really good. And that, that's, that was modeled with chain sets. Um, so now I can understand and model in my head visually, you know, before I write code down what I want this to do. I'm taking, I'm taking this data here and I'm transforming it, you know, doing these validations on it maybe or conforming the, the values. And, and I want the data to look like V2, you know, um, and so active record in my head just models that a lot better, um, and lets me, you know, approach my problems that I have in software and apply this nice tool, ActoChange set that is modeled very well now to, to how I'm thinking about the problem. So yeah, that's, <laughs> I think that's what it gets really, really right. Uh, and I love that part. Um, some of the things that I, I think that it, might fail a little bit on, and, and this is not Ecto. I think this is just a hard software problem. Is that you know you're you're still <laughs> you can st you still have concurrent systems possibly, right? So you, you've pulled the data out of the database. It looks like this. We think in terms of snapshots, right? It looks like this. Something else may have changed it still in the in the database. So as you're doing your change set thing, trying to change V1 to V2, um, V2 may have already happened, and uh, then you try to commit that change, and you you know, you gotta, you still gotta deal with that, that, and, and Rich Hickey goes through uh, some of the, those problems in this talk. So if you're more interested, if you're interested in that topic, I'd really highly, highly recommend uh, listening to them. That's uh, that talk. Yeah. I think, I think the way you talk about the chain set lets us model the actual change of the data is like incredibly well stated for, for how that feels. And one of the things I think is clever with it is 
when you inspect a change set, it has, um, uh, it's using the inspect protocol and kind of overriding that to say how it's going to represent itself in the console, like just like when I'm in IEX. And it simplifies it just for how you look at it. And there's actually a bunch of other stuff hidden in there that's kind of like roughly considered private. But it has a reference like to that original set of data that it had that, that, it's being, that it's supposed to be modifying. And since it's immutable, it's just a, a mem, like a memory reference. And, uh, and that what that's interesting is it enables you to say, oh, I want to put this change on this change set. And it can go back and internally look at the original data and say, well, that value, you're putting it to the same value it already has. I'm not going to actually create a change. And, and then so, so it's when you actually go to say, okay, save this change set to the database, it only sends through the changes that actually changed. So it's not going to say, well, we're going to reset all of the records to what they should be now, all of the fields, I'm sorry, all the fields to what they should be now. We're only going to change the ones that actually had a, a change. And so like that can help with that situation of two different people changing different parts, you know, the same record at different kind of concurrently. And because uh, they may not be changing the same values. Mm-hmm. Uh, but like if you're dealing with something like Postgres, which is, you know, the default database that you're going to be using with Ecto, and I guess that's the one they push you towards, then you're, you're kind of just by default, you're going to get like the last edit wins. But uh, yeah, and, and, and this is no longer about change sets anymore. Now it's just more about the repo, but yeah. you're still given the tools and how to, how to manage, um, manage those conflicts, right? There's a on conflict, you know, mm-hmm. uh, option there when you're doing the repo update or update all whatever. Um, so you have, you still have like the tools, the escape hatches, uh, which I've always loved about Ecto uh, to, to handle those complex situations. And I've had to use them before. Um, and the fact that it, it exposes that, that's another thing I like about it. it, it this is not so much about chain sets, but more about Ecto is that it, it's, it's modeled pretty closely to the tools it's using underneath, uh, but a good, you know, a simple abstraction on simple in air quotes, because um, how simple is the database? Like, you know, it's highly complex, but <laughs> it's, it's, uh, it gives me the good, it gives me good enough tools to understand, um, you know, uh, bridge between my application code and what actually the database is doing with that. And because it, it's modeled very well under underneath to what it's actually interacting with, which is SQL, um, I'm reminded, I don't, I, I can't forget that I am using uh, SQL underneath. And so I, 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 it's not so hidden to where I just totally forget about it, which I found myself doing uh, with Active Record, which to be fair, I was a newer developer back then. Uh, it's either I'm, I'm learning a lot of stuff and SQL just wasn't one of those things. Um, and so active record has a much prettier, you know, syntax on top of it to get me to from point A to point B much quicker. Um, but it, it allows me to forget how it actually works underneath, you know, like I don't know if I would have ever found how to, how to deal with on conflicts, you know, do these things in the database. I know their options are there, but back then I wouldn't have known that to even look for that. Um, Whereas with Ecto, with its, its amazing documentation, I can find that. And it's modeled very well you know, to SQL. So I, I, it's hard for me to forget that, yeah, I'm using Ecto, but what I'm really doing here is just trying to um, create this, this SQL statement in, in a sense. Um, that's, that's Ecto at large, but like change sets is a good bridge um, to get there. So I have a question. What is the most complicated chain set you've ever written? And I don't know how reasonable a question that is, honestly, because I can't think of any myself, but hey, 
anytime that you're you're working with errors and ch and change sets, I feel like that can get complicated. <laughs> um, and that's that's complicated to me because I have to represent a data structure in a human way, you know, to an end user and. I have been conditioned to put it into a flash message, <laughs> so which is a very small space. So take this very large, complex validation structure that we have, you know, come to appreciate, and squeeze it down into a itty bitty space, and um, that's tough. And to get it just right, I think is has been has been tough. Um, that gets more complicated when you're working with embedded, uh, not embedded schemas, but like inside your your change set, you you've cast you know, uh, nested change sets and, and those have nested change sets, you know, it keeps on going down. Um, it can get difficult to uh, wrap your head around how to translate that into a string, you know, that's user, user friendly. Um, I remember when I was first working with change sets, one thing I, I could not wrap my head around was uh, the difference between put embed and like cast embed. Those that was really difficult for me to just just get through to my hard school. Um, I'm not even positive I got it now, you know. But um, that's what documentation it, is for. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I always have to go back to it. <laughs> and so, any time that you have to do nested structures like that, I think it can get complicated. And so that that I think yeah, that's probably the most complicated stuff I've had to work on with with, uh, with change sets. Follow up question. Are you aware of any good open source uh, example of how to how to handle that? <laughs> hopefully, hopefully I can open source something. I, I've got a I've got some. Um, no, I'm not. Unfortunately, I think uh, besides that goes you know documentation itself. Right, there's a function in there called traverse errors, um, and it's a I think it's a low level tool to help you get where you want to go. But uh, it's probably a lot of that boilerplate that all of us have in their their apps. You know, we're all using traverse errors underneath and we're trying to figure out how to make this look like a string that I can present. Yeah, to. I, I, want, I want a library that I can just provide some configuration to and have it handle that mapping for me. Yeah, yeah. Another thing is uh, that I found troublesome is, let's say that I have, back to what Mark was saying earlier, is that you don't have to be database backed, right? You can, you can have an embedded schema, um, create these, you know, these fictitious fields that don't map to anything. Um, but it represents maybe a combination of three different records, right? And so let's say that, it, it, here's a complicated change set now. Let's say that your embedded schema is trying to map and move the params that are coming in via the web into these three different change sets. And let's say that um, the upfront validation that you can do is, is good and you've done it and you have no errors, but then you hit the database, it actually tries to insert, and then the database comes up with these, you know, uh, these database uh, originated errors. Ecto will get those errors, and if you have the right options in your change set, it will convert it into um, the change set errors. If you don't have it mapped, it's something like unique constraints, right? Um, if you don't have that mapped it, uh, to um, an Ecto error, change set error, it's gonna throw an exception. So. Uh, let's just say that you have that mapped, right? You have your unique constraints set in your change sets too. <laughs> okay, so now I have three uh, lower level, you know, ch change sets that I have errors on, and this is post, you know, hitting the database and it failed, and now I have to go back to the web and somehow translate those different, those three different, you know, schemas into this one 
web-facing embedded schema with fictitious fields on it. So like, how do I do that? Um, and that's, that's really tough. And I, what I found myself doing, and, and I don't love this, is there's a, I made a function that will copy change set errors over from one to another. And I just felt like that was just the wrong, the wrong thing to do. You know, it's, it never felt clean. And I feel like the architecture I was going for is the right thing, but I didn't feel like it was clean <laughs> on the other side. Like, like I went into it with this lofty idea that this is good code. And then I, I came out on the other side and I'm like, Oh, I have to deal with errors. <laughs> this is not good code. And, um, yeah, uh, that was, that was very complicated. And, uh, you know, at that, at the end of that story, I just got to a point where like, okay, this is good enough. <laughs> Hopefully I never have to look at this again. And, and, uh, you know, there, there'd be, there'd be devils in here to please don't ever have to go in and, and refactor this. But a lot of times that works out. Yeah. Yeah. In, in your world, <laughs> maybe, maybe not mine. Oh, that's funny. Um, yeah, it, it is true. Uh, so like one of the things I wanted to kind of bring up that, um, that you kind of alluded to there is that Phoenix, like, especially when you're dealing with form inputs and things like that, it really, really wants a change set. Right. It wants you to have a form and a change set attached to that. And then if you do that, then it can automatically put errors on the individual inputs. Uh, but sometimes it's not necessarily a good uh, design, software design to say that my user facing uh, form is so directly tied to my database schemas. Sometimes we may not want that to be so tightly coupled. Uh, and that is where I think you have that awesome opportunity to say embedded schemas. Uh, so an embedded schema, it's like what? So you were mentioning schemas, right? And those tie directly to a database table. An embedded schema is just the same thing. It's a schema, but it's not tied to a table. And uh, one of the things I think is really helpful with that is like you, you mentioned this idea of like having three separate, you know, I, I want in one form of input uh, to come and be directed off to maybe three, even up to three tables. So like in domain-driven design, sometimes they'll call that aggregates. So I'm aggregating this data and displaying it as a single thing, like a concept to a user. And I think change sets does offer a good solution there. But yeah, it's like, it's not perfect, right? We haven't found the perfect abstraction to handle like, well, when, when my lofty ideal hits reality and I have database and like someone's added the, you know, changed the database validation, added some other constraint, and it's not kept up in everywhere that it could possibly be referenced. You know, it's like, we have to deal with that. So yeah, it's, it's interesting though. So I just want to make sure people are aware of embedded schemas and how they can, like in other languages like Rails or something, you have like the idea of form objects, how you can use them for user input uh, that isn't necessarily your Ecto schema, like your database table. Right, and, and to follow on to that, um, Ecto Multi really helps with those aggregate you know, uh, schemas, you know, those, those things that have to deal with three other databases and represent this concept to back to a user. And Ecto Multi has been a lifesaver. That was another thing that was just like, Oh my gosh, thank you so much that this exists. I love it. Um, yeah, I, lo I love it so much. Um, it, but you know, those, those, those can get long and ugly too. Mm -hmm. Um, but that's the, I think that's the nature of, you know, working with complex workflows and, managing the data with it. You know, you gotta, you gotta put the work into it. Are you freelancing or moonlighting? Or maybe you've thought about going out on your own. 
Every week, we have a group of developers at various stages of the freelancing journey on The Freelancer Show to talk about becoming better at freelancing. We also bring in experts to talk about marketing, SEO, and delivering high quality to clients. So if you're interested in going freelance or you are freelance, check it out at freelancershow.com. So maybe you could just kind of give us a little of a background on what Ecto Multi is doing for you. Yeah. So if you think of an idea, uh, like you have one, one change set that represents one database table, you know, one instance of a row in there. And uh, you, you just, you have the change set and you hit repo insert and you're done. Like that's, that's a very good and simple story. Um, if you have a more complex story, uh, Ecto Multis might help. And, and what Ecto Multis can do is uh, they essentially represent like a, a transaction in the database. You can say, but they don't have to be a trade. It doesn't have to all be about transactions in the database. It can be a bunch of, it, it's arbitrary code. And so let's say that you're creating a user. Hopefully your user isn't a monolith user where it has 3000 fields on it that represent everything about the user, right? Hopefully you have maybe three database uh, tables that represent a user. You got your real user record that's, very slim, has nothing. It's just an ID, really. Then you have a profile, you know, uh, for that user that carries all the stuff about first name, last name, you know, nickname, uh, that kind of stuff. Then you might have like identities. Identities would be like, this is my email and password combination to get into your app, or this is my Google login, you know, OAuth kind of app. I have two identities now, you know, email, password, sign in, and Google, right? Okay, so now I have like three tables. So, uh, if, in the process of creating a user, um, I need to create three records. I need to create a user record, profile record, and uh, and one or many identities, right? So, uh, um, Ecto Multi allows me to to manage that whole process and roll back um, if something fails. So, the first thing I would do is I would create a user record. There's little to no validation on that, so that goes through. The second thing I would do is create a profile. If they messed up on the profile, didn't give me their I don't know, their first name and I require it, it'll roll back and it'll undo the, um, the user record. So it doesn't actually persist in the database. So that's more like the database transaction, you know, that it's, that it's managing for me. You can also do like arbitrary code there. You can say as soon as, as soon as the profile is created, go, um, go, you know, emit some other side effects or, you know, increase the counter over there, you know, this other thing. So it doesn't have to actually be like on the record itself. It can just emit side effects um, or just log something, you know, it doesn't have to, doesn't even have to, you know, do anything important. Yeah. And so that's what Ecto Multis do for me. Uh, and so it, it, as you're building that Ecto Multi, it, it kind of aggregates that data that's created up to that point. So I have access to the user that was created in the step before and, you know, I can use it when I'm creating the profile and I can use that going into the, into the identities and so forth. Um, and so that's a, that's a good scenario of how to use like Ecto Multis. And um, they, they allow me to chop up the code too in a nice succinct way. Right. So I can, um, I can name each part of those transactions, you know, the, each part of the little, database row interactions, you know, as a different function that I can even use separately outside of the transaction. So anyway, uh, yeah, that, that's, I freaking love Ecto Multis and the fact that they're there, you know, is, was so relieving to me because <laughs> I, I had done a lot of like active record base, you know, connection dot base tr transaction do, and then this big block of all the stuff that I need in it. And then I forget sometimes that I'm, I might already be within a transaction, you know, from some other object that's, that's calling my code. So it's, 
I love that it's all right there together um, too. That is very cool. I, I agree. Uh, so one of the things that I want to just mention, um, uh, longtime listeners may remember this, but uh, back in episode 24, we talked with Andrew Draga about uh, sagas. Uh, and, and it was as related to multis. And so I just want to bring that up because uh, like a multi, like as, as David's kind of described there, how you know, you, it can be used to create a transaction around uh, this set of operations that all should happen. And if, any, if it fails, then just roll it all back. And it works really well. But there are certain things you should not put into a multi. And I've made that mistake before. And we discussed that in this episode. Uh, but it's things like, um, you know, if I'm talking to an external system, and as one of those steps in my multi, I say, oh, okay, we've, this is valid, this is valid. Okay, now go set up this thing in this other system, which is completely outside of my transaction. It has its own database store. You know, it's its, it's, it's, its own thing. And then if it rolls back, that other system still has that thing. And it's like, it is an imperfect solution there. So one of the things to check out is uh, Sagas as a, as a solution for those types of problems. Uh, thankfully, you know, if, if you're just aware of it, you can avoid them in most of the time. But uh, yeah, so multis, I think they're a great resource to be able to be comfortable with. So I am also curious if there is a, um, a good open source example that you think is a solid example of uh, chain set or ecto etiquette and composition generally. The ecto docs themselves have a, have a section on how to compose them. <laughs> That's the first place I hope most people will look, uh, but they have a, a really good, uh, a good section on it. I mean, and it inspired my article too. I, I also wrote another article a long time ago back when Phoenix 1.3 came out. And this was more about introducing the idea of context to me. And so uh, composition became more of a topic in my mind um, and mostly for queries, but for change sets uh, too, that, that was uh, something that, that came about for me. Like, for example, I might be working with two different roles. No, I don't. Sorry. You've asked this before, I think. And no, I don't, I don't know of any good open source libraries that, that look at that. Um, but also, I, I haven't gone and looking for it either. This has all just been experience. Um, yeah, I was, I was thinking more applications like, um, I don't know, the change log is a good example of a big Elixir application. Yeah. Anyway, I'm going to go yeah. delve through some and see, uh, see how they do it. I, I always hear good things about the Nerves Hub um, guys and, and their code base. So I, I wonder if there's something in there. I will, I will look through there for sure. Thank you. Yeah. One thing I'll say is like whenever I end up having a conversation that ends up with, oh, we're not sure, you know, what would be a good resource, we should make one. Uh, you also write something for Elixir School, which, you know, as you may know, free open source uh, Elixir curriculum. We have a number of lessons in there on change sets, but I don't think we have anything in there on uh, composing change sets or anything like that. So if anyone here or anyone listening wants to write something, we can add a, a link in the show notes to how to contribute. Sweet. Yeah. Plugging for okay. making things better for everyone. Well, that is probably a great place to wrap things up. Let's go ahead and move to picks. Josh, do you have one? I do. I have uh, two. The first is Thomas Paine's Common Sense. And uh, there's a free ebook for it that I'll drop into the show notes. And the second is Rook. Um, and I needed Rook on my Kubernetes cluster because I needed read, write many persistent volumes to run something. And uh, you can do that with Rook and Ceph and it also has an NFS operator and it's really cool. Nice. Sophie, how about you? 
yeah, I have a few. So I have a blog post that I actually think I picked before, but it felt especially relevant to some of the things we chatted about today. So I'm repicking it, which is a, a post from a former Flatiron School colleague on composing ecto queries. I read, you know, I revisit it again and again, like whenever I need to do that. So thought I'd throw that out there. Um, and then I'll also pick uh, Elixir School and I'll share a link to how to contribute if anybody wants to write something. And then on a separate note, um, go see Birds of Prey. If you haven't seen Birds of Prey yet, saw it over the weekend. Just a pure fun movie. Super, super cool. Um, that's my other pick. Nice. I have not, I don't stay up on current movies. So I'll have to check that out. Yeah, I'm not like up on, I didn't see, um, I don't know, Suicide Squad or like anything else with the Joker or Harley Quinn, but it was, it was such a fun movie. Cool. All right. Mine is, I was listening to uh, a podcast um, from Planet Money. Uh, so I have a link to that in the show notes. It was their episode 967. They've been going for a little while. And it's about a uh, US law coming back from the Middle Ages called Eshit. And there are a lot of jokes around that too. Uh, but what it is, is basically it is the ability for the government to uh, confiscate your money if it's in a place and you haven't accessed it for some time. And then, so they also talked about how to get that back. Uh, so I Googled lost money and the state that I'd lived in, you know, like the current state or previous state. And then from there, it's, it's like, make sure you choose the .gov site and not some other site that like scrapes it and tries to get you messed up. But uh, I'd lived in Alabama uh, for five years. And so I found, oh, there is actually something here. Oh, that is me that has my previous address and it's less than $50. So I'm in the process right now of having to prove that I was at this address and but then they'll send me my money back that they took from me. But so, <laughs> I'm not sure if I'm glad or not, but you know, it's like, it's just something interesting to be aware of. It was a great episode on planet money. Uh, so just, you can Google lost money and the state to get to the website. And then you can search around for your name and see if there's anything that might be there for you. That's it for me. How about you, David? Yeah, uh, two, two picks. Uh, first one, uh, I was working with a product called Whimsical lately about designing visual workspaces. That's what I'm going to call it. Uh, I'm working on an idea and I needed to visually map it out. And, and so Whimsical, uh, they have a free tier. So feel free to go check it out. Um, no strings attached. It, it allows, it allowed me to really rapidly prototype, uh, a UI for like an app, uh, a, a flow chart. Uh, so like boxes with arrows that point to each other, uh, a mind map and, uh, essentially a Trello clone too, which had, might even be better than Trello itself. So it was, it was really surprising. So I, I loved it. Uh, so I want to give a shout out to whimsical. Um, the other one, is more development related and it's actually a, an article in a talk. So uh, first it's, it's, it's designing towards team accounts. So, so this idea of a, of a user and a, or an account in your app and, and what maybe some good decisions to make are, you know, as you're, as you're doing that. So if you're starting an app, you usually you gotta get a model, a, a user in some way. So check out these two articles. Uh, the first one's by digital ocean. And the second one is by a good friend, Zach Porter, uh, where he breaks down the user monolith. Um, he actually gave this talk at Elixir Conf, uh, 2018. So go check it out. Great. Well, thank you, David, for coming back on and joining us. It was good to catch up with you and see what's going on. Um, if people would like to connect with you or get in touch with you, where should they go to do that? Twitter is a good space. Um, at Bernheisel, you'll find me there. It's B-E-R-N-H-E-I-S-E-L. Uh, you'll find me there. 
Great. And if you want to get in touch with me, I'm at BrainLid. That's L-I-D at the end. Imagine a little flip top hinge on the top of your head. That's what mine is. Uh, Sophie? Yeah, you can also find me on Twitter. It's S-M underscore D Benedetto, uh, which I guess I'll spell and for a penny and for a pound. D-E-B-E-N-E-D-E-T-T-O. That's me. <laughs> yeah, so you can find me on Twitter at Knuter, so K-N-E-W-T-E-R, and uh, various other places as well. Great. And we'll include those in the show notes. We'd love to hear from you. And that's it for today. Thank you for listening. And we hope you'll join us next time on Elixir Mix. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more.